0: Welcome to another edition of the Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 115th show, and today's guest is speaking to us from Florence, Italy. It's Donato Trumato, author of Double Bottom Line. Did I do a good job with your name?
1: Uh, close enough, Mark. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm thrilled to have you here. So let's start off with you telling us about your professional background.
1: First of all, thank you very much for uh, for hosting this today. Uh, I've been in healthcare for over 40 years. I um, started uh, several healthcare companies, and uh, my last uh, stint was CEO of a public company and a program that is well known uh, in the United States. A program called Silver Sneakers. However, I also um, have launched uh, two books, the most recent book that you have referenced here today and uh, two not-for-profit um, foundations over the last 20 years. So I, I consider myself not just a business person, I consider myself a healthcare activist and philanthropist as well. That's great. And, and why did you write this book? It's a great, great question. Um, You know, we're living in unprecedented times. Uh, Never before in our lifetime have we seen such widespread disruption and major shifts in how we work. And I still see too much of the old face of leadership in organization today. It's a top-down, hierarchical, the boss has all the answers type of leadership that focuses more on productivity and profit than people. And Mark, that simply doesn't work anymore. Today's workforce is too young, too diverse, too disengaged, and too tired of not being heard and respected. That's why I felt very strongly that we need a new model of leadership, one that is necessarily people-focused in addition to performance. I'm not saying it's all people and no performance. It's a combination of both. And That's really what prompted me to
0: write this book. I have to tell you, I think your book was spot on, especially as I talk to my daughters and uh, today's worker, especially now that they have options. You know, when we were kids, our options were just regional, you know, whatever our car would take us to. Now their options are unlimited around the globe. And if you're, as a leader, not treating them well, well, they can go somewhere else pretty quickly if they're talented, right?
1: Well, just to comment on that, as you know, we have witnessed a widespread exodus from the workforce, and they're calling it the Great Resignation. And Mark, I'm not sure that's the right term. I think it's, I think it should be termed the Great Reflection. People are reflecting on their lives; they're reevaluating their priorities, and it's not just monetary. Uh, reasons why they're leaving. They're leaving for many other reasons. And, you know, quite frankly, what we found in our research, it's the passion. They they want to feel like they belong. And so this is why I call the great uh, reflection, not the great resonation.
0: And you were on the board of the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Foundation. What's that? And how does that foundation make a difference? Why did you even get involved with it?
1: Well, first of all, I'm honored to be a part of it and honored to be not only on the board in the U.S., I'm on the board here in Italy. Uh, the reason why I'm in Florence right now is we have a board meeting um, in our annual gala. I think that one of the aspects of the RFK is its focus on human rights and the focus on the correction of so much bullying that's going on, not only in our schools, but in society. I am very touched because Robert Kennedy was one of my heroes, and uh, I don't know if you know my story, I lost most of my hearing at the age of eight. And for 10 years, I was uh, literally without any hearing, and I was bullied and made fun of, and um, I failed the fifth grade. And hence, the reason why I think my whole life has been focused on trying to be a more compassionate leader and certainly what we know about Robert F. Kennedy is that he transformed his life uh, amidst such great adversity and great loss. And I admire that. And I think that's the unique quality of a compassionate leader is how they're able to transform their lives. And so the Robert F. Kennedy Center is working with so many uh More
0: just. I missed the end of that. I'm sorry.
1: The last part of that is that the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights is really fulfilling Robert Kennedy's commitment and promise to make the world a more fair and just place.
0: How, how did not? How did losing your hearing change you? Not just as a kid, but ongoing.
1: Well, it's a great question. I was recently interviewed um, by an organization that asked me which event uh, changed your life forever. And I have to tell you that the loss of my hearing changed my life remarkably. Yes, it was very painful. And yes, I had moments where quite frankly, I would have, you know, traded the you know, position that my twin brother had. My twin brother was able to academically excel, and you know, he was very athletic. And I always cut around. The only athletic ability I had is I jumped to conclusions <laughs> because of my because of my hearing loss. I could not be involved in sports. However, what it taught me was the value of understanding the pain that other people experience. And I think the only way you can inspire to be in a compassionate leader is to really experience the pain yourself. And so it made me more conscious of the challenges that individuals are facing, both in their personal and professional lives. And it made me a, a, a tad more uh, kinder uh, to other people. It also made me an activist, that I was able to thanks to my parents, I was able to have access to some of the best healthcare procedures. That's not the case for all people. And I think it's why I entered into the healthcare arena, because I believe that healthcare is a basic right for every single person. And I should not be able to have access to healthcare just because of my zip code. And so I think a lot of really good things came out of that, um, you know, that experience. What, are your, what did your
0: parents do professionally?
1: Um, my mom was a uh, housewife and my, um, my father was um, a-, a laborer. He worked in the steel mills.
0: And, and still they were able to give you all the support you needed.
1: Exactly. And it's funny you asked that question because I really never realized the sacrifice that my parents made until they they both passed away, you know, about a year apart. And they were able to make sure that their, their children had an opportunity to go to college. And the sacrifice that they made, I had uh, about six different surgeries. And my parents had to drive me about an hour and a half away from where we lived. And there were times when my mother had to stay with me at the hospital for you know several weeks. And so I never realized um, until they passed away, you know, the sacrifice that they made uh, for their their seven children.
0: Welcome to parenthood. Uh, mm. It's a lifetime of sacrifice. Um, can you define compassionate leadership? Because you talk about that compassion doesn't mean weakness. So talk about that.
1: Well, I'm glad you're asking that question. First of all, it's not the definition according to Donato. What was really uh, unique about the book is that I started off thinking that I would only interview ten world leaders. Well, I ended up interviewing over 40. And we also added about, um, I'm going to say about four months into the writing of the book, we added another aspect, and that was to conduct a survey of 1,500 individuals in the United States. Where I'm going with this is that we had incredible data from the 41 global leaders that we interviewed and the 1,500 people that we surveyed. And the definition that came out of that project is compassionate leadership is empathy in action. You can't have one without the other. And I think that that was a very um, validating uh, definition for me because it allowed me to look back at my life and ask the question, did I really practice compassionate leadership? And I was very happy that the majority of the time I did.
0: All right, are, are you a devout Catholic as well? And, and does your faith affect you?
1: Very interesting question. You know, I spent seven years um, studying for the Roman Catholic priesthood. And a lot of people ask me why I left. And I tell them I didn't want to work on Saturday and Sundays. Now I work every single day. <laughs> I do think faith plays a role. Um, there's no question about it. Uh, I am a very Uh, Faith-driven person. However, I've met a lot of people, you know, in this you know research for the book that that didn't necessarily, you know, have faith as their primary objective. Uh, And so, I don't think for anyone who's listening to this that you know you have to be religious to be compassionate. I don't think that that is is you know is necessary. I think you have to have an understanding of pain. And you have to be willing to listen to the pain of other people. And that is a skill you can develop.
0: Um, In the book, uh, you mentioned Presidents uh, Lincoln and Roosevelt, and and they were first to come to mind to me as well as compassionate leaders. What did they do and what made them consider to be that?
1: Well, I think when you study their lives, I mean, look at uh, Lincoln. You know, Lincoln suffered how many nervous breakdowns? You know, he never landed an elected position until he you know, was elected to the office of president. Look at Roosevelt and the suffering that he endured and the physical handicap that he had. And I think that when you compare this to what's going on on the world stage today, when you look at Ukraine right now and you look at innocent children, who are losing their lives because we're bombing, you know, you know, hospitals being bombed and you look at the leadership there and the ability for that individual to align with understanding the pain of his people versus the aggressor who has gone into that country, who's failing to use empathy. And by the way, in our research, if you lack empathy, then you lack the ability to change your viewpoint. Empathy allows you to understand the perspective of the other person and to change your viewpoint. And it's very interesting to study Lincoln and to study Roosevelt. And, you know, I always say Bobby Kennedy did not start out as a civil rights leader, but he died a civil rights leader because he took the time to understand what was happening, you know, in Mississippi, what was happening across the world. And so I think when you have this incredible sense of feeling pain, then you really do have an enormous ability to modify your perspective and your approach. And I think you, that's you, what Lincoln and-, and You, you have wrote.
0: to be open-minded, right? And um, be willing to change your position to be empathetic.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and by the way, I've had to change my position many, many times, both in my personal life and my professional life. You know, you mentioned my hearing loss, but one of the most significant losses in my life was on 9-11. And I know that impacted the entire world, but for myself and my partner, two of our friends and their three-year-old had been staying with us at our home in Maine. And I was scheduled to be on United Flight 175 uh, on September 11th. And because of a toothache, I changed my flight to go out the night before. Unfortunately, my two friends and their three-year-old kept their flight on September 11th and lost their lives. They lost their lives when the second plane hit the South Tower. The reason why I share that story with you is my life changed on that day. I don't think I was as generous before 9-11. And from that event, we launched two not-for-profit foundations. And I could have had anger and hatred in my heart, and I think people would have probably been understanding of that. But rather than have hatred and anger, I channeled it into doing something good. And so, you can change your perspective. You choose which direction you want to take. Do you want to go down the path where you're going to be bitter, or do you want to go down the path where you can do good in the world? And and certainly, you get more enjoyment by 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 doing good.
0: Well, maybe that's the failing right now of America. Is the people on both sides are so locked into their view that they're not willing to. Uh, listen to the other side, and come to a compromise?
1: Well, we're having versations. We're not having conversations. And I do devote an entire chapter on what I call reflective listening. We need to listen to understand. Let's not listen to react. You know, Yogi Berra, my favorite philosopher once said, "You (laughs) you don't want to make the wrong mistake." You're going to make mistakes in your conversations with with people. However, if you take the time to truly listen, by the way, Mark, I think one of the problems we have today in our society is that we, we focus too much on what's different about us. I guarantee you, when you take the time to listen to understand, you'll find out that the person you're talking to is also suffering from cancer like you are, or they may have lost a brother and a... Car accident the way I did. And before you knew it, you find that common denominator and you don't look at what separates you. We are looking too much today at what separates us. And I think we have to get back to having a conversation and get back to listening to one another.
0: That would be a show unto itself. Uh, So let's talk about many leaders talk about their focus on the double bottom line, but what percentage? Do you think really live up to it? What leaders do you view as fitting this description today? And you talk about them and have interviewed them in your book. So, can you talk about that?
1: Correct, uh, but you know, I I, I want to reference a Harvard uh, study that uh, really uh, aligns with what we found in our uh, our research. Eighty percent of leaders want to be more compassionate, but they don't know how and i think that that was what we really were motivated by this book it's, it's it's really a reference book on how you can learn to be more compassionate and the 41 leaders that we interviewed listen not all of them started out by being compassionate but they realized over time that it wasn't just something that correlated to being nice when you were compassionate in terms of your decisions you ended up feeling better about yourself. So there's a well-being aspect out of this. I kind of give the story that uh, one time I was on an airplane and the doors had not closed and I was on a conference call. I was trying to squeeze a conference call before the plane took off. And I had my eight executives on this conference call. And one of the executives had uh, become a little bit uh, too aggressive in her approach And um, I tried what I call the three T's, which is use tenderness first to get the trust and then be tenacious. Well, to be honest with you, it wasn't working. I was using all my tenderness and I wasn't getting anywhere. And so I had to be tough on the call. But I realized that I had done it in front of eight other executives. And the plane took off. And for two and a half hours, I felt really bad. I didn't feel good. And when that plane landed, I immediately got on the telephone and I called this executive. And I did what this executive had never, ever seen in her experience with a CEO. I apologized. Guess what? I felt really good and she felt good. And so I do think that being compassionate, using empathy, having self-reflection, and being vulnerable, you've got to be vulnerable. You've got to be willing to share your story. You feel better as a leader and you can sustain really strong results by practicing every single day.
0: Aren't certain cultures view um, compassionate leaders as weak? And you you address this in the book.
1: Well, for years, I was accused by my uh, colleagues as As being a weak leader. Um, Because quite frankly, when you mention compassionate leadership, immediately you jump into this notion you're 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 a nice guy. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Compassionate leadership is not associated with being nice. Nice, you should always be nice and kind to one another. You can be tough. And I just shared with you one of the approaches that we recommend in the book, and that is practice the three T's. Start off with tenderness first, and then you get the trust. And then you can be tenacious. Too many leaders start off with tenacity, and then they go around with a pooper scooper. They've made all sorts of mistakes, and they've made all sorts of damaged relationships. And let me give you an example. When um, When I became CEO for the first time of a public company, I had two divisions. One division was performing very well. The other division was not. Well, when you added it together, we were an unprofitable company on Wall Street. And Wall Street was pressuring me to make a decision. But you know what I did first, Mark? I went around and I met with more than 2,000 of the employees. It took me a To understand subperforming performing division. We did something that had never been done before. We actually paid another company to take that division. It had never been done before, but it wasn't my idea. I had listened to the employees who recommended, why not approach a company that's private and see if they will take it off your hands? Well, let me share with you what happened. When we announced this to the public markets, the stock doubled the next day, and we did not lay off one employee. The company that took that division, and we gave it to them. They didn't pay for it. We gave them the division for free. They kept all the employees. And talk about trust. I had built incredible trust with the employees that remained in the organization. And so it takes a little bit longer when you practice the three Ts, but it's a process that helps you execute tough decisions and gets you beyond this notion that compassionate leadership is weak. It's not weak. I can make just as many tough decisions as the next person. However, I do it in a way that doesn't leave a mess behind. I think that's what
0: Joe Biden had going for him, regardless of how you view um, the leadership between President Trump and himself, that people voted and felt like he was gonna be more compassionate and that's what they needed at this particular time. And whether President Trump is actually compassionate, that's subjective, but that's people's viewpoint of it. Uh, According to the book, you're one of the first to acknowledge in the healthcare space that loneliness and social isolation is the new chronic condition of the 21st century. Society society collectively experiences this during the pandemic, as uh, so many of us felt. What was and is your advice for how people, especially leaders who they themselves and their employees were experiencing during this pandemic, how, sh- how could they better deal with it? And especially now with so many people actually still wanting to work from home, which I can't understand how companies are going to maintain any kind of culture if people aren't actually together interacting.
1: You have mentioned culture several times in the last 20 minutes, and I'm going to shock uh, the viewers. Culture doesn't eat strategy for breakfast anymore. Trust does. If you don't get the trust, and I think that that's what's happened, we've been focusing too much on 90-day plans and, you know, getting the vision, the mission, and the values in place, yet we have sabotage getting the trust. And so you have to get the trust first. And what I would say to those who are listening here today is that Maya Angelou said it very well, people will forget what you did, people will forget what you said, but they will never forget how you made them feel. There's nothing wrong by starting a Zoom call and asking people how they feel. During the pandemic, I uh, had the opportunity, I serve on nine boards, I had the opportunity to provide coaching to quite a few CEOs. And I had this executive one time who called me and said, I don't know what I did wrong here today. This is about a year and a half ago in the beginning of the pandemic. He said, I had called this customer to find out when the purchase order would be signed. And I asked him, well, tell me how it went. He said, well, it started off as a Zoom call, and the customer had shared with me that his wife and children had COVID. And I asked him, "What what did you at that point do? He said, well, I said, I feel bad. When will the purchase order get signed? Now, there are so many things wrong with that. And this leader, quite frankly, did not know that he could have asked, what can I do to help you? and maybe reserve the purchase order for some other time. And so we have to change the whole approach of how we are dealing with our employees and associates. They are people first. There's nothing wrong with asking about their stories. A number of years ago, you mentioned loneliness. I'll tell you how I uncovered loneliness is that I had taken the time to go out and meet with more than 10,000 seniors in my program. I don't think any CEO in the company prior to myself had ever done that. You have to really get involved in the relationship with your customers and your employees if you want to understand them and if you want to build trust. It may seem like it's a difficult thing to do. It really is not. And you'll be surprised when you ask a question similar to the following. Share with me how you're feeling today. Don't ask, how are you? Add another word there. How are you feeling today? And you will be surprised how people will open up to you.
0: No question about it. And they will They will share. Well, why does former uh, Maryland Lieutenant Governor Kathleen Kennedy Townsend write that it takes steely courage to be a compassionate leader?
1: Well, you know, I can't you know speak for, um, for Kathleen. Kathleen is a very dear friend. But what I can share with you is that I think when you look at the courage that that family has had to display on the world stage amidst so many losses and to still be able to show compassion and show kindness, I think is where uh, that word steely came from, is that you really have to be willing to take risks. And when you are involved in the life of your employees, yes, you're taking a risk when you're vulnerable. By the way, for many years, I never shared with my employees the story that I lost my hearing. I never did that because I was afraid that they would know something about me that might change their attitude toward me. Wrong. When I started to share that I failed the fifth grade, that I had a speech impediment, that I stuttered because of my hearing loss. Mark, it opened an entire new world for me. And that's what I think Kathleen meant by, you have to have that stealing courage to really practice compassion. You have to be willing to share who you are with other people if you want them to open up about themselves. Once I did that, golly, did my relationships change in the organization? And so I, I think that that's what um, uh, Kathleen Kennedy uh, meant by that statement. Do
0: you think people are wired to be compassionate or can they learn it?
1: Well, our research uncovered that you can learn it. Uh, I don't know whether I was you know, born with this compassionate leadership gene. But certainly through the journey of my life. And by the way, my story is just a story. It's no better and no worse than anyone else. I always open my conversation with the following question Don't tell me what you do, tell me why you do it. And I think when you get to the passionate qualities of why a person is doing what they are doing, I think you begin to extract those compassionate nuggets out of them. So it can be learned. And many of the Leaders that we interviewed, quite frankly, I don't think there was one that, you know, you know, was born with this compassionate leadership gene. By the way, I always say, if you need a root canal, you're not going to go on the street and just take anybody off the street and say, perform the root canal. You're going to go to a dentist, an oral surgeon who had years and years of experience. I am much more of a compassionate leader today than I was 40 years ago. And so it does evolve and it can be taught. It seems
0: much of America, and we've talked about this already, um, and maybe the world has lost its sense of compassion. At what age should we teach people and how should it be taught and how often?
1: Well, I'm so thrilled you're, um, you're raising that question. By the way, if you go and look at the business curriculums, there is not a course on compassionate leadership. Last week, I was on the uh, doctor radio series 110 uh, live talk, and we had a physician who was interviewing me. And, you know, quite frankly, even in the field of medicine, we don't teach about compassion. We don't teach our doctors to be able to ask questions that can connect to the individual's, you know, story. And so I would like to say that we should be teaching them you know, when they're right out of, you know, you know the crib, we should be teaching them in a young age. And then we should continue it with formal training. I am so thrilled right now we have a university um, that we are working with that's going to convert the book into a executive leadership curriculum. Music to my hearing aids. How wonderful. <laughs> How wonderful that we have a major university stepping up and basically acknowledging we don't teach this in the academic business schools, and we have two other colleges that are right in the back wings of doing the same thing. So let's start earlier in the household. Let's start with our political leaders. Let's start with our business schools and our high schools, and and help young people understand what the key ingredients are. To leading with compassion.
0: Are you ready yet to tell us who that school is?
1: Uh, not quite. Um, uh, we're in the process of finalizing the curriculum. and. Uh, okay.
0: Uh, leaders need more skills today, as you point out in the book, than any other time in history. And, and I don't think there can be a doubt about that. Uh, they need to be good communicators, transparent, adaptable, understanding, supportive. Uh, It's exhausting all the things you really need to do, but that's what you need to do to be a good uh, person and a good partner with someone else. Are colleges and universities and leadership development-focused organizations like the police, fire, military academies teaching this, and how could they do it better?
1: Well, first of all, I want to make, um, make it crystal clear. This book is not just for business leaders. This book is for anyone who is in a leadership position, parents. You mentioned police um, force, um, political leaders. And by the way, the 41 cohort of leaders we interviewed represents America. Uh, We interviewed a 17-year-old young um, lad who started an organization during the pandemic to help seniors learn how to use social media. And so I think what we have to understand is that We have right now five generations in the workforce, five generations. And the Gen Zers and the millennials are soon going to represent greater than 65% of the entire workforce. And so I think as leaders, if I focus just on that constituent right now, we've got to get them ready for the future workforce. By the way, Mark, the average age of a CEO in America is 59 years old. By the way, that's the same average age of our political leaders in Washington, which means that they have been trained by those who went to school in the 60s and 70s. And so we've got to realize that what employees want today from their leaders is more work-life balance. They want flexibility to be out of the office. By the way, I just read this week, which is just really, I'm not going to mention the name, but I'm sure the viewers know who it is but a major leader who's basically forcing the workers back into the office. That's not going to work anymore. That is absolutely not going to work. The employees today want their leaders to be authentic, and they want them to show that it's okay to be human. They want to belong to a community. They want to be something part of, you know, something that's bigger than what the product in that company might be offering and they want their leaders to care about their well-being, And this is why when I look at some organizations, Starbucks is a great example of it. I applaud what Howard Schultz is doing, his third stint, but he's going around and listening to the employees. He's not making any decisions right now. He is listening to the employees. And I think that we have to get back to the basics. And that is to understand what each one of our employees want in that organization. And that's where the trust gets built.
0: So this is a question from the audience, the same question I had, I asked you, the glasses. Tell us the story about that because I think some of us feel like we're losing our eyesight here.
1: Well, you're not. And um, uh, these glasses um, uh, came from the Peggy Guggenheim Museum in Venice. Uh, I was very fortunate back in January as a result of the Rapid F. Kennedy Center to have a private tour of the Peggy Guggenheim Museum, and these glasses are from from there.
0: You mentioned that the two most important skills that workers need to develop is creativity and compassion. Explain the creativity part.
1: Yeah, and I use a word in the book. uh, It's actually my word. Um, Collaboration. And what I mean by collaboration is that we still have to be innovative. You can't operate any company or in any industry without having that innovative, creative spark. But quite frankly, what we're lacking right now is there is a low amount of collaborative IQ. And the higher your collaborative IQ, the more you're willing to work with the other person who might have For your solution, they might have the answer. You might have a creative spark about an idea. But if I'm working with somebody else and I'm willing to work with that person, they may have what you're missing there. That's compassion. Compassionate leadership is understanding that you have to elevate your collaborative IQ. And if you're not going to elevate your collaborative IQ, quite frankly, I don't think we're going to get much Done in solving some of the thorniest issues. I think the pandemic is a great example of what happened with the vaccines. People were working together. We had our government working with the pharmaceutical companies, we had our government investing in the pharmaceutical companies. They started to extract data from 15 years ago. And look what happened. We had a vaccine available in record time. That's a great example of collaboration. We still need independent creativity and innovation. And we need to combine that with a higher collaborative IQ. It's
0: funny, many people don't know that um, the pandemic wasn't solved in nine months. This has gone back 15 years. What where did leadership fall here that a good chunk of society doesn't believe in what the pharmaceutical companies are telling them, doesn't trust the science, a whole bunch of distrust in a lot of different levels. What could leadership do better? to get those people to trust it, considering they all had shots when they were kids that have worked out quite well for them.
1: Well, I think this is probably you know another you know, special- Another show. Event. Yeah, but I think I will just answer it very, very specific to what I had said before. We need to get back to listening to people. Let me give you just a great example. A few months ago, um, if you ever have dinner at my home, I always ask one or two questions Um, for all the dinner guests. It's a great way to get people to know and understand one another. But I always ask the question with explain why you're providing this specific answer. Well, I had this dinner meeting at my, uh, my home a few months ago, and I asked the question, the question was very basic. Tell me about a famous person to whom you would have wanted to live their life. Well, we went around, when we came to the third person, the individual mentioned a political name. And Mark, the dynamics changed. Another dinner guest literally smirked and almost attacked the individual who gave the answer. We've got to stop that. And the individual never took the time to listen to the person's why, why they gave that exact name. And so until we get back to taking the time in our families, and our business environments, wherever we are, just listen. I think we'll get the trust back. But there has been an enormous trust decay in our society, and I think it's going to take some time to get it back. What
0: was your answer to that question yourself, that dinner question?
1: Oh, that was very, very easy. Mother Teresa,
0: And we all know we don't need any more explanation than Mother Teresa. Are there differences, and you talked about this a little bit earlier, in generational outlook from boomers to millennials to uh, Gen Z? I mean, I know my nephew, I I just saw him last week, and he's in business school at Emory. And he was telling his father and I, I do not, I have no interest in working uh, investment banking because I don't want to be working 12, 14 hours a day, seven days a week. Ah, uh, that's to me, there's no life there. So what, what's the generational changes and outlook and what should today's leaders be more cognizant of?
1: Well, there's no question that there is, you know, generational you know differences. And I'll give you an example of myself. We have to be willing to bring into your leadership team, not individuals that look like you and think like you. A great, great example is that, um, and she's on this this call right now, my program manager is a 23-year-old young woman who graduated two years ago. Now, normally, I would have hired somebody probably in their 50s, somebody that had a lot of experience with respect to not-for-profit foundations who may have worked on a book launch. That would have been an absolute wrong approach. I brought in Catherine, and she has been amazing. I have learned so much from her. And I think that the notion, when you look at the average CEO, when you look at their executive team, they're all looking identical. And we've got to be willing to diversify, not just in sexual and racial facets, but also in age bring in younger people, bring in other generational aspects and insights. And until we do that, we are going to miss an enormous opportunity in how we develop the trust and the culture in the organization. I am so thrilled. Catherine has taught me so much and we have to be willing. I'm 66 years old and I have to be willing to listen to someone who's 23. And I am telling you by doing that, I have shown empathy, I have shown an understanding that I don't have all the answers, and quite frankly, that I'm willing to listen to the insights of another person. By the way, I'll share with the audience a great example. One of our foundation laureates who joined a consultancy firm, the founder of that company after six weeks had asked this individual to work on a charity. And his response was, I cannot. I'm hosting a bachelor's party for my friend. Do you know what the founder of that company said? <laughs> you are worthless. I am sorry that I hired you. This is a Friday night and you're not worth what I'm paying you. Now, <laughs> can you believe that's still going on? Well, he called me and I said, You only have one choice. You, you have to move on. And <laughs> he, left it. he left the company. But, Mark, my parents would have said to me, don't you leave. That, that's a income. You can't leave. Today's generation, I applaud them. They will not tolerate that anymore. And there was nothing wrong with this employee saying that I can't do it. By the way, the punchline is he had shared with his boss that he would be willing to work on a Sunday, but that was not good enough for that boss. So we have got to understand that this generation will not accept that kind of approach, and I applaud them for not putting up with that.
0: That CEO needs definitely uh, to spend a little bit of time in therapy, uh, because typically when you lead like that, the smartest people leave and the people who have no option stay, and then the whole business goes south for you. Um, One of the listeners said, if you could speak up more, that would be great, and if you could type into chat where you got your cool glasses, uh, they would love those glasses.
1: <laughs> I will do that. <laughs>
0: you you mentioned that you studied to be a priest. Why did you abandon that? And and what did you learn from your studies in the seminary? And how did that impact you as a leader?
1: It's a very good question. You know, I left because I quite uh, I felt quite frankly that I could do more um, outside of the church. And quite frankly, that has been the case. I felt that I could make a difference um, just as much, if not more, um, by being outside of that kind of a community. What I took away was how important community is. And for me, I have been so blessed um, by the friendships and the relationships that I have formed in my 40 plus years in business My father once said, be happy if you have as many friends as the number of fingers on your two hands, for whatever reason, God has given me many hands. Mm -hmm. Everything Everything that I have shared with you today has not been done on my own. It's been done with the relationships of so many people that I am incredibly grateful for. Case in point, the 41 world leaders that I interviewed, no one said no to me. Um, there's a line, Mark, that I use in the book that I think is very, very powerful. You rent your title. You own your dignity. And what I learned from the years of studying to be a priest, that you don't need a title to make a difference. What you need is your sense of dignity, your sense of purpose, and your sense of who you are. And once you have that intact, you can accomplish almost anything. And that's what I have tried to do in my lifetime.
0: Is there one right way to lead? Because we certainly have seen different uh, ways based on the last few American presidents, uh, the Ukrainian president, which I think he has been an incredibly stellar leader, even prior to what's happening now, and the Russian presidents.
1: Well, I don't think you can lead without compassion. Yes, there are you know several Uh, approaches that you can take from the leadership experts. However, there is no question in my mind that if you don't have a foundational basis of compassion and how you treat others, you will not get done what you want to get done. Yeah, you may be successful individually, but you will not be successful as a team leader and there are a lot of leaders out there that quite frankly have led with a you know iron you know fist and they have been autocratic. But when you look at them, they have been successful individually. They've not built success throughout the entire organization. I think we saw that in our country over the last four years that we are now more divided than we have ever been. I think when you look at Ukraine and you look at President Zelensky and you look at his compassionate approach and his reasonable understanding that his people come first and you look at the other side, there's no comparison. And so I do believe that the common denominator to all of the different leadership approaches is you must start off with compassion first.
0: Many organizations aren't led by dictators and bullies. And you already mentioned one of them uh, with the guy who wanted to go to the bachelor party can those people be saved or improved or do you just write them off?
1: Well, I'm not that naive to believe that everyone can be saved despite your best efforts, but I do believe you should try. Um, I could have just put the book to the side and, you know. by the way, one of the things that I have done this past week, I'm living my definition, which is empathy in action. I have sent a copy of the book, or we are in the process of sending a copy of the book to every governor, in the United States with a letter that simply, you know, you know, includes the following words: compassionate leadership is empathy in action. Please do something to protect our children in our schools. And so um, my hope is that we will get a few that will look at this and say, you know what, there's a message here. And so I I, I, I do think that there's always going to be a few that will never rise to the occasion. However, I'm an optimist, and I do believe that we can help uh, save our world, we can help save our country, we can help save our businesses by helping others understand what compassionate leadership is.
0: Investors and boards are typically focused on financial results. That compassion is fine if the numbers meet and or exceed financial goals. Should there be a compassion score, and how would that be measured and related to financial results?
1: Well... Remember, it's called the double bottom line. It's not titled the single bottom line. (laughs) Okay, and I gave you the example of the, you know, company that I had um, become CEO of. What I didn't share with you is within one year, we turned the company around to profitability after seven years of not being profitable before my tenure. The employees never made a dollar of bonus in seven years. The decision we made around compassionate leadership, the following year we paid 200% of bonus. The second year we paid 150%. So please don't take my message out of context. You have to deliver the results. And from my experience, the results that I have been able to deliver have found its origin in leading with compassion.
0: How should today's leaders be developed? Because, and are universities doing enough to develop leaders in the right way? And, or even our other institutions, military, police, fire? What what should be the ingredients and the recipe for developing the right leaders who are also going to bring us together and not um, foment um, breaking
1: us apart? Well, uh, let me. Are you still there, Mark? I am. Let me let me say this. When I turned Healthways around, now Health, and Wall Street applauded me, do you know there was not one analyst that asked me what I had done to secure the trust in the organization? All they were interested in was the financial ledger, and that's what has to change. And I did not get those results by just looking at the financials. I got the result by empowering and connecting with people. And so, yes, universities, business schools have to do more. And I am encouraged that we are in discussion with three or four colleges and universities who recognize that there is an extreme gap in how we are preparing our future leaders. So I'm optimistic that if, by the way, I don't see this as a book. I see this as a movement. I never, ever launched this as a one off book. It's out there and now I'm done. We are looking at this as a movement. What
0: did you learn about leadership and compassion during the pandemic? Because I thought it was a mixed bag. You had medical staffs who were like soldiers on the battlefield, while others showed little concern for doing everything they could to make their fellow person's life safer. So, what was your takeaway?
1: Well, first of all, the pandemic had a disproportionate impact on a population that we all have been fighting for for many years. I think what I learned out of this is that your zip code should not make one iota of difference as to whether or not you have access to health care, whether or not you have access to transportation. And it took the pandemic to put a spotlight on the social determinants of health. Look at our mental health challenges here today. We were already experiencing severe mental health issues before the pandemic. And now we have escalated the mental health issues here in the United States and globally. And so there are disparities. And I think that that came out in spades during the pandemic. And I'm once again, optimistic that we are at least now recognizing that because somebody is born in a certain zip code, it may very well mean whether or not they live or die. And that has contributed to the inequities that I think, quite frankly, we have talked about for many years. I am much more optimistic now that we are looking to do something about it.
0: You give a lot of examples of community compassion, but I think many communities in the US and probably others around the world struggle with this. How could communities be more kind and inclusive and reduce Social anxiety, such as the inner city mass shootings that we've seen?
1: Well, it goes right back to what I said before is that we are lacking in our ability to have collaboration in communities. We, you know, when I was in Italy in January, Mark, this is shocking, but there was a woman in Lake Como who had been dead for two and a half years. In her kitchen, she was found by a local fireman, but she had been dead for two and a half years. And the assumption in the community was that she may have left the community during the pandemic. Didn't anyone take the time to knock on her door? And so we've got to get back to the basic technology. Yes, it has helped a lot, but it has also hurt a lot. We've got to get back to the basics of connecting with people Far deeper than what technology can do. When a woman in Italy could be dead for almost 30 months and nobody knew it, that's just unacceptable. And by the way, that's not just in Italy. There's cases of this happening here in the United States. And so we've got to get back to the basic you know, connections. Stop by and visit your neighbor. Talk to your neighbor. Don't be afraid to have a conversation.
0: Here's my last question. You write at the end of the book about how uh, un- about understanding the younger generation. You've talked about this throughout today, and their focus on work-life balance. How is this possible uh, while we're trying to economically exceed the last generation uh, when costs are rising and competition is greater now than any time in history? I mean, my kid, uh, both of my kids live in LA. One is trying to buy a house, and a minimum-priced house which is not even particularly nice, is $1.2 million. Every time you look around, the numbers are just out of sight. And I have a younger, and she makes great money, and the younger one doesn't make great money. And so we were always hoping that every generation would exceed the last. But I think this generation is worried that we're going backwards. What's your thoughts Uh, on this? I think what
1: you're saying is, you know, and it's been certainly proven that the United States remains the most unequal high-income economy in the world and listen I've done very well I was a businessman for 40 years however that doesn't um, you know make it right that somebody else cannot uh, afford a home or you know they're taxed you know to the extent that it makes it difficult for them to to, to buy groceries and so I think there's gotta be some policy changes. I don't think this can all happen just in businesses. I do think that we have to shift toward understanding that perhaps maybe there should not be these, you know, standard taxations or payroll taxes across all venues of our employees. Perhaps we shift taxes toward capital and away from labor to encourage workers that there is a promise that they can have a life better than their parents. The percent of Americans in the middle class has dropped since the 1970s from 61% in 1971 to 51% in 2021. And so we've got to start looking at social mobility, the chance to move up the income ladder. And that's fallen in the United States. And yes, technology has reduced demand for certain low and middle wage workers, But it doesn't mean that we should just sit back and not do anything about it. And I think that that's where policy changes can provide, if you will, this optimism for the younger generation. Don't you think
0: it really starts at the top? I mean, when you and I were uh, in our 20s, in the 80s, uh, the average CEO made 60 times the average worker. And they were even embarrassed that anybody knew that. Now, that ranges from 300 to 3,000 times, depending on. You know what you're looking at in terms of but nothing. Nobody quotes less than three hundred. So that means they're making what three hundred people are making.
1: Well, and it's not not only there, and I do agree with you, but it's also in our university. You know, system. Should we be promoting, if you will, curriculums and professions where you have a two hundred thousand dollar you know school loan debt? yet you know that it's going to be difficult to employ that individual in the future. And so it's not just at the employers, it's not just with the government. I think our educational systems have to change.
0: I have to tell you, it was a great hour that we spent. I so enjoyed uh, reading the book and listening to your commentary about what you've learned from interviewing these leaders and your own perspective about what it's going to take For society to be successful going forward, because it's going to require a lot of work. I think we're in a more dangerous time now than we've ever seen, and a a time more now than uh, that we're polarized as a group. So, hopefully, people are going to read this book, give this a lot of thought, and hopefully, those 50 governors you get, some of them will actually read the book, especially the ones who really need to read the book. So, thank you so much for taking the time, especially since you're enjoying. Uh, some vacation time in Florence, Italy. Uh, We all wish we could be there with you for those of us who may not be from that part of the world. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. And um, hopefully when you write your next book, you'll be back with us.
1: Thank you so much, Mark. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for listening
0: to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.